Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry, I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 156 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where we we really do love movies, unlike other film people who apparently hate them. We just we want women to make them because men have been doing it for too long and not usually doing it very well. Anyway, I'm Karen Peterson, joined as always by the amazing Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hello. You know, I said on Twitter earlier, I was just like, I feel like this episode is going to be a scream into the fathomless void of dumb male opinions. <laughs> and much. and I still feel that in my soul. Like it's it's just this week has for some reason been just a time of dumb male opinions. In some ways, it's kind of a relief, actually, because we've spent so long, you know, dealing with really, really serious world stuff, which is uh-huh. still happening, undoubtedly. And I'm not minimizing that at all. But it's been kind of nice to see some of film twitter just kind just like debating dumb shit things like are sequels good or <laughs> you know what's the worst tarantino film it's kind of nice and in, in a in a completely idiotic way mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> it's it's oh, yeah the horrors of the world still exist and yeah um it's and this week has really been bad for for just stuff and I mean, that's such a dismissive way to say it, but this week has just been so bad. But I think that's one of the reasons why I love movies, even movies about really hard subjects, because they do provide an escape from the stuff that we're dealing with in real life every day and seeing. And it's, yeah, yeah, like I need, I need to, this sounds terrible being a white woman and saying like, I just need to turn off the news is too much, but the thing is that we all need that sometimes and it doesn't mean that you step away from fighting the fight but your brain just needs to focus on something else for a while and then you can come back and re-energize and ready to fight uh police brutality and harassment and all these other terrible things that just will not stop happening yeah exactly and and i think that you know, one of the reasons why we've argued and so every, you know, so many people have argued for diversity in filmmaking and that includes creators, that includes who's on the screen, who's behind the camera, all of those things um, is because we need those multiplicity of stories and and we, and everybody needs a, an escape to some level. You know, I, I was watching um, the documentary Crip Camp last night and it was and there was one there's one moment and it's not really about this but there's one moment where one of the, the um the disabled people who's taught who were talking uh said you know i never saw anyone like me mm-hmm. and suddenly in going to this camp she was experiencing all of these people who were you know quote like her who had similar disabilities who were in wheelchairs who, who you know had these other things that they were dealing with and it gave her a sense of community. And I've thought about that in terms of what we represent on film, obviously. And 
it, it is that important that it's not just, you know, we need to tell these searing stories of, of, you know, women suffering or black people suffering or any, or disabled people suffering or anything like that, but we need to actually tell stories about, you know, love and humor and comedy, you know, all of these other things that are a part of people's day-to-day -day lives and have a multiplicity of people on the screen. Um, and and that that's that's important in so many different ways. And I think that it is important when you're talking about justice and civil rights for everybody, uh, that being able to see yourself on screen, just doing normal things sometimes, you know, or living a normal life at some level is is um, is is just as important as you know uh, as seeing anyone else like and it's also important for those of us who aren't disabled who aren't black who aren't female etc to you know see ourselves to see them on screen and to see people that aren't exactly like us on screen because it gets really boring honestly to see nothing but the same person up on the screen able-bodied people white people males etc so, so, yeah about no it's true it's so important and i mean the thing is that we don't know what we don't know. And that's something that is a very common overly used ex, uh, expression. And something that we have talked about a lot here, like when something's outside of your own lived experience, a lot of times we don't even know that that necessarily exists, you know? And, and so therefore, how can you tell a really well-rounded, a really deep and, and full story about people or communities or experiences or traditions or anything, if it's not part of your experience and you're not bringing in other voices to help make that story uh, fleshed out and, and colorful and yeah. bright and real, you know, I mean, I was just thinking about that in terms of, you know, not knowing stuff yesterday, I had an experience where, um, so my mom, she, is spending her retirement doing a lot of stuff with volunteer organizations and things. And so I was going to go help her, um, do some like putting together these hygiene kits, but we were killing time. And she's like, Oh, Hey, we got this cash donation too. That was supposed to be for baby stuff. So would you mind running just to Walmart and getting some like formula and baby food and stuff like that? I'm like, yeah, sure. No problem. So I go over to, to the Walmart and I've never bought baby formula in my life. I've never had a reason to. And I mean, any of my friends that have, they have, they don't talk about their experience buying formula. So I didn't, I, I you know, I've seen just kind of in passing that they usually keep the formula locked up. And I thought that was weird, but I'd never had had any reason to really give that any actual thought. And so I go to this, I go to the section of the store where the formula was and there was another lady waiting there too. And, um, she had already called for an employee to come and unlock it. So this lady finally shows up after, I don't know how long we were waiting, maybe 10 minutes and it's eight in the morning. The store is empty and it still took 10 minutes to get help just to open this stupid cabinet to buy formula. And then I couldn't just pull what I wanted off the shelf. No, I had to tell her exactly how much I wanted. And then she's just like, well, is this wick? You know? And, and I was like, no, I, I said, I'm paying cash for it. And she's like, okay. Cause today's not a wick day. And I'm like, okay, first of all, rude. 
why are you talking so condescendingly? Second of all, I just told you that's not what I'm doing. So you're what, you know, so it's just the whole exchange was just off. And then, uh, so she pulls everything off the shelf for me, puts it in my cart for me. And then I start to wheel it away. And she's like, no, I have to take it to the counter. And I was like, what? So then she's escorting me through the Walmart to the cash register. Meanwhile, the other lady also was buying formula and she's just like, well, I have other shopping to do. And this, this employee was just like, well, it'll be at the front of the store waiting for you. And I was just like, my gosh. Okay. (laughs) If we have to make it this, like if people are stealing formula and that's why you have to keep it locked up, let's address the fact that people have to steal formula. Obviously they're doing that for a reason, you know? So it's like, there's so many issues going on here, but it's really one of those things where it's like, I've never had any reason to have known about this situation. So therefore, like, I couldn't tell a story about a new mom trying to get formula for her baby because I've never experienced that. And I would never have known that that was something that women go through and, and that they have to have this kind of humiliating experience. So that's a weird, uh, analogy, I guess, but I just think there, there's so many of those types of experiences that people don't even know about. And they're trying to tell stories that they are just not capable of telling because of things that just are outside yeah. of their experience. Yeah. It's, it's not something, I mean, I would never have even thought about that. Um, yeah. Like that, that's not, I had, first of all, I, I don't think I've ever, I think I've walked past the baby formula sections. Like I don't have any younger siblings. I don't have any children. Like I'm, yeah, like, like you say, I've yeah. never done that. Right. That's never been a thing that I needed to do. Um, but yeah, that, there's like a whole heap of issues that are connected mm-hmm. with that, you know, because I, like you're saying, obviously the reason why they're locking it up is because people are stealing it. Um, if you're stealing baby formula, this is not like, you know, Sudafed where you you're using it to make meth. Right. I don't, I can't think of anything that you do with baby formula other than feed a baby. So yeah. if you're talking about people who are stealing formula in order to feed hungry babies. Then there is a whole mess of issues exactly that, yeah. that need to actually be addressed by that. But, but yeah, exactly. I don't think that like, if I were writing a script, that would not even cross my mind that I no. would address that about a woman going to buy formula at a no, Walmart. You just walk in the store and buy it. It's yeah. Why easy. wouldn't you? Like, you yeah, every, like mostly everything else, you know, I know that there are other things that are, that get locked up like razor blades and, you know, uh, uh, some pharmaceutical products and things like Spray that, paint. but yeah. Um, but still that's, that's not one that would cross my mind, but that's, that's the thing. It is important that we actually have, stories being told by people who either live them or who want to take the time to find out mm-hmm. right and i you know i think that this is i think some of this is what we're going to talk about today but to actually you know when you're writing something about that that isn't your lived experience we're not talking about like you know i've never flown an airship into the stratosphere or something like that that's one thing to never have done you know, I've also, I've never bought baby formula. That's something very different. And that's something that is very easy to find out, you know, okay, what is the process that you go through with this? And to talk to people who do have babies and who have had this experience and actually, you know, be able to represent that in a more realistic way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking of people who write about things they don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Perfect segue. Uh, so Stephen King was 
he was the subject of some tweets this week, but he wasn't the instigator of them. I don't, I don't think it was based on anything that he specifically said. It was just someone came out and was like, Stephen King couldn't write Carrie today or, um, yeah, it was, I think it was phrased trying in a to find very, the tweet. it's phrased in a very passive aggressive way because it's actually like, well, I have a question for film Twitter. Could Stephen King have written Carrie? in you know 2021 because he's a man you know and right. what actually came out if you read through the thread what actually came out was that this guy was not actually asking about Stephen King writing Carrie which is a very specific thing but about uh, whether or not a man could write Promising Young Woman which is a completely different thing mm-hmm. um and and also somehow he was addressing this to, to film Twitter and I'm like but the he book didn't is write diff- the screenplay yeah the book is different from the film which both of them have their issues but these are two different mediums that we're talking about and you're also talking about something that was written and made you know 50 years ago so you're talking about an entirely different culture so it 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 was this very i think very disingenuous question that was essentially intended to do exactly what you said which is you know are men allowed allowed quotation marks to to write about things like women's issues and you know women having their period and stuff like that in the in the agenda today i wrote stephen king couldn't write carrie today lol just kidding he's a rich white man he can do what he wants because that's so true (laughs) (laughs) i mean stephen king today could write carrie today because he would get it published immediately because he's stephen king like he actually struggled more probably in the 70s getting it published Mm because no one knew who the fuck he was (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. But but just to your point though, I mean this is such a such a disingenuous article or a topic or question because there are lots of men writing varying qualities of stories about women today in 2021 still getting published. Woman in the Window is a perfect example of that, which that's a whole other thing we'll talk about when that movie finally comes out. Uh if it does. But um but yeah, so it it's this this weird way that people have of trying to say like, oh, well, see, we would reject this art if it came out now because um, because we just don't value the artist. That's how it came across to me, and this I and then conflating that with with promising young woman, like no if a man wrote or directed promising young woman it would be a totally different movie it wouldn't be the same it couldn't be the same yeah i it's it's a weird i mean there are so many different layers to the question the, th- the thing is this is not something this is not unusual right so the, we're talking about this one specific tweet that is referencing mm-hmm. this one specific thing but this is a refrain that we've heard a lot yeah from male viewers from male critics and even from from some women and particularly white women um you know being like well am i allowed to do x because i'm white because i'm female because i'm white or male or cisgendered or anything um and it's like well first of all there's a difference between being allowed to yeah and being criticized for it so would we allow stephen king to write carrie you know it's it's a weird kind of um it's a weird mind game because you're like but it's very much of its time period and like all the, all those other things but just for sake of argument would we allow stephen king to write carrie in 2021 
Absolutely. He would be allowed to write that book because men continue to write those kinds of books Mm -hmm. and get published and get a lot of accolades. And, you know, people still read Carrie and treat it as this great work of of horror literature. Um, And same thing with the film. You know, would that film be allowed to be made? Of course it would. It absolutely would. Now, we would criticize it. Uh, as the book and the film have both been criticized pretty uniformly over many years. Um, And so being allowed to write something or being permitted to to tell a certain story for white, particularly for cisgender white men, is not something that they have to deal with. Uh, Now, I can criticize them for it. And in fact, there were a lot of people that would probably criticize them for it as, as they well should. Um, but they would definitely be able to do it and could potentially be very successful at doing it. Yeah, I'm trying to find the exact tweet because I'm pretty sure something else in it said something about universally beloved. Is that the one where the guy was trying to say that Carrie was universally beloved? And I was like, okay, first of all, uh, (laughs) I reject your premise that it's universally beloved because I do not love it. And I'm part of the universe. Well, exactly. I was like, I, I don't like either the book or the film. So I think that we no longer can say universally beloved. Yeah, it's it, the whole thing was very odd. But I think that Carrie is a good example in some ways. Um, because it is this very female story that is written by a man that the film is directed by a man, a, by a man who's been criticized for (laughs) misogyny in a lot of his films and for for not representing women in a very positive or nuanced light and it's it's weird to read that as being like well everybody loves this book it's like I don't think that they do though I'm pretty positive I don't like yeah exactly well I mean the whole thing opens on a girl having her first period and um it's not a realistic depiction at all and that's in the book and the movie and it's just like this is so stupid (laughs) this is so stupid oh i hate it i found the tweet this is from todd spence honest film twitter question stephen king wrote carrie and it's obviously a universally beloved story after 50 years but dot 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 could a man get away with writing that kind of story and everything that story deals with from the female perspective today? You'd be criticized for it. Like, yeah. Period. period. Yes, he'd be allowed. <laughs> yes, he could get away with it. Yes, it would probably become an international bestseller, just like Stupid Woman in the Window. But there would be women that would be saying like, no, this book is crap, but it wouldn't stop him from making a bunch of money off of it and getting a movie deal. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, like like you said, one of the things that that bothers me first off about Carrie is that it's an obviously male perspective on, and and I think that that he addresses this actually in some of his tweets, but um, that's obviously a male perspective on not just being a teenage girl, but very personal things about being a teenage girl, getting your first period um you know having kind of your first sexual feelings of of sexual attraction to the opposite gender and carrie is a very specific person right um and she has her own very specific problems but it feels wrong it doesn't it doesn't feel right so i the first time i saw the film i remember being like well that's just stupid 
like the 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 that initial scene in the showers right yeah. i'm just like that's not like not even in the 70s that's not that's not really how it works that's not that doesn't make sense to me you know and i know that different women experience periods differently different women have periods that diff- begin their period at different times of their lives etc but it just didn't feel right it didn't work in, found, in, in it, my eyes yeah it felt like a man saying periods are gross and we're gonna make this gross and horrifying exactly and i i remember being in a and i probably referenced this before i remember being in a horror class and and the male professor um was asking us just like okay well what is like abject this whole this whole idea of the abject of abject blood right and everyone was like what the fuck is he talking about abject <laughs> blood what is abject blood and what he was getting at was was quote dead blood period blood right blood that is actually just being being expelled from the body and immediately all of the women in the class were like well maybe to you <laughs> like because the rest of us were you know the vast majority of us had had our periods and had experienced that mm-hmm. and we knew and in fact we've had our periods many times over the course of our lives and this is not something that we are horrified by particularly mm-hmm. men might be grossed out by it but it's like this is something that you know most women not all women obviously but most women go through uh from the time there's some time in their adolescence to the time that they hit menopause like that's a reality mm-hmm. yeah. so no we're not grossed out by period blood you find period blood gross yeah i mean it's not fun to deal with but it's yeah there are definitely worse things like boys it's normal opinions. It's it's very it's very day to day for us. Exactly. Yep. Anyway, so yeah, he could get away with it. It's not universally beloved, and quit acting like the freaking victims, boys, because you're not. Well, that's that's the thing that drove me crazy about this because, like, like I said, you know, it's it is more it is of a piece with things that we have heard from men before from from male critics and male viewers. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we're just talking. I'm talking specifically about cisgender men. Yeah. Um, who you know talk about this as though they are oppressed or something that like oh, we're going to suppress white men's right to write about girls having their periods it's like no i firmly believe that um a cisgender male can write about a a woman having her period in a compassionate and understanding and realistic way that does not mean that he has lived that experience and that also doesn't necessarily mean that he should i don't think honestly i don't think that stephen king should write carrie i don't think that that's a thing that he should be doing because i don't think that he has the desire or the understanding to really consider what it is to be a teenage girl even a teenage girl with superpowers Mm -hmm. yeah but the question wasn't whether they should, it's whether they could. And speaking of whether or not you could and should do things, there was a really great tweet. Well, I enjoyed it quite a lot um, from Jessica Ellis. And this one, it's it's again about like if something were made today instead of when it was originally made. But this, I think, is great because it's more in line with how film criticism has turned and how... Uh, certain conservative like podcasters and bloggers look at the world nowadays and try to try to write about Hollywood so this is from Jessica Ellis she said can you imagine if Jurassic Park came out now we'd have to deal with dudes saying they only made the dinosaurs female to be political 
It's like, oh my gosh, that's so accurate. And then someone it else is so commented, accurate. Yeah. And then someone else commented, Mary Sue the T-Rex. And she responded, when did that T-Rex learn to stalk things, huh? It's just suddenly an expert. <laughs> <laughs> and then someone else said, and don't forget about them being able to spontaneously change their sex. That would definitely get those podcasters screaming in 2021. <laughs> and I was just like, wow, that is so accurate. It's scary. <laughs> you know, we are going to suddenly hear like some some dumbass right wing podcast has talked about how Jurassic, how Jurassic <laughs> Park is, you know, secretly about the trans agenda or something <laughs> like that's trying to infiltrate us like, oh, my God, yeah. like. yep exactly and then of course some dude comes along no one has ever made this complaint about jurassic park stop trying to stir shit up like congratulations sir you've missed the point (laughs) you missed the point dude (laughs) yeah anyway but yeah that's a that's a great take on um on the state of how we talk about art in this day and age not about how it is made and who makes it ah goodness my god i know i know um so another (laughs) another bad take on twitter this week (laughs) this is just the the week of bad twitter takes and by the way if you follow the oscars just maybe mute a lot of oscar stuff for the next couple of days because we're in the last week and it's just gonna get real bad but anyway um so this isn't about oscars but this is another bad twitter take it was about sequels trying to find the tweet that finally made us say we need to talk about this i am struggling to find that too well uh generally i thought that because we were talking about scream the scream mm-hmm. franchise and it was the anniversary of scream 4 yes uh like last last week mm-hmm. um and and people were like ranking what are your you know what's your ranking of scream films and i was certainly like i think it's stupid to rank scream Scream films, specifically Scream films, because they're all of a piece. Yeah. Right. They're they're not like they build on each other. Part of the whole fun of the Scream franchise is that they're riffing on the the sequels to horror films. So you've got the original that is itself a riff on horror films, um, specifically on slasher films, and then you've got the sequels, which are then riffs on the original concept of the slasher but then also riffs on the sequels to slashers and how the rules change and all of that shit and and it's like so you can't rank those films per se because they're of a piece they're part of one another you can't Mm -hmm. say that like scream 2 is better than scream 4 because scream 4 is doing something completely different than what scream 2 is doing right yeah no i totally agree with you it was what was frustrating me was just seeing like all the like every time the scream movies come up people have to use that as an opportunity to dunk on scream four to dunk on scream three to claim that those are bad or you know or whatever and i'm just i'm so exhausted by that because they're all good scream four is great that was such a brilliant reset of the of the franchise scream three is a lot of fun i was re-watching it this morning just because why not because i really like that movie a lot and i think that it's it's um i think a lot of people miss like all the good stuff that is that is happening in that and so it's just it's so frustrating i was thinking too about how like i don't know what it is about the scream movies in particular 
but out of any horror franchise that has you know has sequels there's just it's it's i feel like people are the meanest about the scream sequels you know if you say you like freddy versus jason or whatever people are like oh ha 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 you know they just kind of laugh it off they don't get all mad about it and try to like argue with you about your opinion you know what i mean yeah i mean sequels generally tend to to divide people and i I think we're going to talk about this more in a minute but um the, the Scream franchise, I remember going to see Scream 4. I think Scream 4 was the only of the Scream films that I actually saw in the theater. Um, and I remember going to see it and in, almost immediately I was like, this is great. I love this. Like the op- mm-hmm. from the opening scene, I was like, I know exactly what it's doing. Um, it's it's using the same kind of template that the, that the first Scream did, but it is doing exactly what these kind of horror reboots do. <laughs> yeah um and and it knew what it was doing like that that's the thing that's one of the great things about that franchise is that at each step you're like this is a riff this is you know using all of these things that we know about these kinds of films and running with it and doing something really interesting with it and that's what scream Four did exactly it wasn't until like a couple years ago that i discovered that this was like oh everybody hates scream Four. i was like well first of all again universally beloved everybody hates no everybody does not hate mm-hmm. <laughs> obviously and also i feel like maybe you don't you don't completely get the point of the scream franchise if yeah. you are like well scream 4 sucks because i don't know why i honestly have never understood why people like scream 4 sucks other than you know it's like that sort of hatred of things that get rebooted even though it's a reference to reboots themselves yeah yeah it's it's like people just hate it in response to the fact that it's a a reboot they just are automatically going to i also think part of it is like it really does kind of hold up a mirror to the generation that it's uh that it's embracing and taking place in and i think people don't like admitting that uh they're a bunch of fame whores and (laughs) and that's what makes that movie that's what drives that plot and that's what makes that movie work so well is it really does shine a light on on the generation of kids that are at that time of the movie taking place so yeah it, like it, being called it, out <laughs> exactly it puts it puts a knife into that and i think that that i think that that's what makes the scream franchise so good is that you get these these films that are horror films they're comedies and they're and they're pastiches right they're kind of these postmodern takes on on very recognizable tropes and then but underneath it is always this knife basically there's always this like oh by the way this actually does have a point and you know maybe we need to talk about it a little bit more maybe we need to talk about the the degrees of violence that we're representing while at the same time we're acknowledging the fact that we enjoy this kind of violence Mm -hmm. you know there's always that that's kind of lingering in the background of the scream films and that makes them i think that much stronger as a franchise and as individual films yeah yeah i mean they're they're very smart and and people don't either can't see how smart they are or just choose to look past it but it's it's too bad because there's so much depth there and it's disguised by this you know uh 
these horror movies, these bloodbath movies that also have a lot of clever wordplay and and just you know goofy characters. That's the thing is like these characters are silly. They're goofy. They're not necessarily like serious people, and that's part of what makes the what makes the chemistry of the casts work so well. That's what that's what makes you keep wanting to watch because it's like. I mean, Sydney Prescott, she's kind of a boring person, but you put her in a scene with Gail and Dewey and it's a lot of fun. A lot of, a lot of good stuff happens because of that. Yeah, absolutely. And Scream 3 is just so damn fun. Like quit making, you know, quit complaining about what it wasn't because I know a lot of people wish that Patrick Dempsey had really been the bad guy in that one. And that would have been a very different movie and it probably could have worked that way, but that's not the that's not the movie that Wes Craven wanted to make and it's not the movie he did make and judge it for what it is not for what it isn't I will admit I'm a little bit nervous about Scream 5 because it will be the first one that Wes Craven wasn't involved in yeah the the lack of Wes Craven is is definitely the thing that kind of questions it because because again what makes the original Scream so good and what makes the sequel so good is is that it it's it comes from the perspective of a director um, and a group of writers, obviously, who really understand the genre, mm-hmm. and who also, in the case of Craven, who understand he understood his place in the genre. Yeah, and that was part of what he was doing with that. And so, at the same time, you know, in some ways, it's it's a very kind of apt thing to occur to happen to get Scream Five, and to have this be completely different. Uh, a group of creators mm-hmm. um, that this this kind of continuation of this horror franchise that is so associated with a particular director and now is no longer associated with that director is now going to be taken on by other by other people so it, it has there is something kind of apt about all of it I I don't know I think it'll be yeah. interesting to see where it goes where we go with that yeah it will be interesting because i mean it has been 10 years since scream 4 came out so really this is like like soft reboot of the series it's not not necessarily but it's you know it's gonna take place in another different time horror movies are different now even than they were 10 years ago and um so i'm i'm curious to see how that'll all work but but just going back to your point too about you know wes craven and how he's he's basically he's making this movie um that is sort of a loving homage but also kind of making fun of um the classic horror movies of the day which he was also part of of that and but he does it so well and this is where i don't know why this just popped into my head again but um you know some people they really understand their genre so well that they can make a movie like this and other people don't like that was was really surprising about when Steven Spielberg did Ready Player One, which is a movie that's all about 80s nostalgia and especially pop culture. And Steven Spielberg was such a huge part of that that it's weird that he made this movie that felt so empty and flat. And I'm sure part of that was just the story, which he didn't write. But but part of it too was just that he didn't want his own part, his own work to be a big part of that movie. And it's like, okay, then you're not understanding what the nostalgia is. If you're part of all this, this stuff that was so, you know, so, so much a big part of the eighties, 
You can't make a movie about that and not include it. Wes Craven was like making fun of his own movies too and and giving nods to them because he understands and he understands what audiences want in the modern time. And that was that was one of the things that made Scream 4 so great too is that he he was able to uh like he wasn't stuck in his time, you know. He was able to understand mm-hmm. modern audiences and grow with them. It was really interesting to see that. Yeah, and so much of the Scream films are about generations, too. So the first film really is dealing with, um, you know, Gen X, essentially, mm-hmm. so, or, you know, or some mid-90s, right? Yeah. And then you see that kind of grow and change, and then you, by the time you get to Scream 4, you're actually dealing with millennials, right? Um, and so you, horror has changed, generations have changed, what is iconic and what isn't has changed. And, and awareness has also changed that that love those levels of the meta narrative and um and the views of postmodernism and everything we're we're really in a point where postmodernism has gone beyond postmodernism i don't know where what we're <laughs> in anymore um yeah. but it, because everything has become so pastiche ridden and so referential and craven as, as you say recognized that um and he and he used it Right, so he understood kind of like you're saying what genre he was working in. I, I honestly, I don't think that Spielberg has enough self-criticism to really be able to do a riff on his own '80s nostalgia. He, I think he, I think at some level, Craven knew what he was doing because he was, he really was him and and John Carpenter and all of those guys were bringing a serious political viewpoint mm-hmm. um, into horror films. I don't really think that Spielberg is aware of that in his own work. I don't think that he understands that genre is a vehicle for other things. Yeah. And and that's what a lot of the the particularly the iconic horror directors did understand and do understand. Horror is not really about the, you know, the killer. It's really about something else that is going on within the culture. Um, and that's something that they get. And I think that that's something that Craven weaves into um, the Scream films, whereas someone like Spielberg, I don't think is, is, is critical enough of his own time or of the films that he made in that period to really be able to get at why genre needs to be broken and riffed on and exposed at some level. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And now we're going to really make people mad because now we're complaining about Stephen King and Steven Spielberg but um the two untouchable Stevens right but um you know I I mean I'm a fan of a lot of Steven Spielberg's work I grew up on his movies not just the stuff that he directed but a lot of things that he produced too I mean some of my favorite films are from him but I completely agree with you that it's like he knows how to make an entertaining movie but I think in in some ways he doesn't he doesn't fully know why they work you know like it's it's like he has this he has a good handle or at least he did on um what audiences want to see but not necessarily why and i think because um because of missing that piece we see in his later films where it's he's just not able to uh, to capture audiences the way that he used to because because he hasn't unlike Wes Craven like he hasn't adapted and changed and grown with them 
And I think it's because he just doesn't really have that deeper level of the psychological side of things. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I'm just thinking about it, you know, one of Spielberg and Lucas's major, major franchises is the Indiana Jones franchise, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and which is itself a riff on serials yeah. um, that they watched when they were kids. Yep. But it's it's like they un- so they understand obviously that nostalgia, but there is again, I think it's it's this level of self-seriousness that they believe that this is really it's fun, but it's also this is also real right as someone this isn't something to mock this isn't something to pull apart this isn't this isn't really a place to investigate you know some of the issues that those serials actually had with the issues of racism issues of ethnocentrism issues of white colonialism all of that stuff they never really un- try to unpack that right right so they're not again they're not in the Anna jones films they're not using genre as a way of digging into issues with the genre and issues with the culture in which they were produced, which is what Craven is doing in the Scream films. Mm-hmm. And he sometimes succeeded, succeeds and sometimes doesn't, but um, he, he obviously has an awareness of that that I, I, I just don't think Spielberg has. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I do. Uh, so what are... What are some times that sequels, and this is just in general, this could be horror, this could be any types of sequels, but what are some times when they work and when they don't? Like, what what makes the difference? Oh, sorry. Before we do that, we got a question from James, and this is specifically about Scream. So we'll do this, and then we'll jump back to just sequels in general. Um, Yeah, James said, if you could cast someone as a villain in the Scream franchise, who would you pick and why? <laughs> I, was, I was trying to think about this you know i i i really want one of the mainstays to wind up being the killer in the next film i want someone like gail weathers to have like snapped and <laughs> just started fucking killing people um as in terms of someone who's kind of kind of comes in from the outside i'm not certain um I have, I have def- maybe someone like Zac Efron, I think would be a lot of fun actually, but that's just, that's just me being silly. A bit. <laughs> I mean, it would be fun to see him just be a psycho killer. Um, that's not Ted Bundy, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I personally would like, a a, a blending of genre of, uh, of franchises you know i'd like to see scream and ma join forces i think that could be fun um (laughs) couldn't you just see ma coming back as ghost face (laughs) oh my god it's just like i decided to come over here and fuck some of you white kids up like yes please um yeah so i don't know I, i i I like it. I liked one of the things I liked in Scream 4 was that it was a girl and not because like, not like, yay, girls can do anything, but I don't know. I thought it was a, an interesting, um, an interesting way to do that because all three of the, well, I guess, I guess we had Billy's mom in the second one. She was part of that, but I don't know. It's just, it's, um, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but anyway, I liked that there was just more depth and more reason behind it. Um, like there's, there's an intentionality behind who is responsible for the murders in each movie. So 
I don't know. So I'm, I, I don't know. It'd be hard to just pluck a name and say like, I want this person to be in scream and turn out to be the killer. Like that's a, it's a tough question. It's a good question, but it's a tough one to answer. Yeah. Well, and you do have to have a cast of those kinds of people because you can't like cast, you know, Zach Efron and then five unknowns or something like that. Cause it's going to be like, well, I know who the killer is. <laughs> yeah. If he doesn't die in the first five minutes, then he's obviously the one who did it. <laughs> yeah um see i think that would be fun to have someone like zach efron show up in the opening scene and be the like yeah be the instigating murder that you know something like that would be fun yeah so. i i agree with that you could be the new drew barrymore uh-huh yeah <laughs> <laughs> i like it anyway so yeah so sequels in general so what makes them work what makes them not work and is there ever a time that they should not make a sequel? I think there's always a time that they should not make a sequel. Sequels <laughs> are not required. I I think it, some of it depends upon what the film is. I think that when you're talking about, um, you know, if you're talking about something like that Star Wars franchise, right, where you actually have a planned plot arc, right? You know where, you're, where you want to start and where you want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those, particularly the original trilogy works really well because you, you do have an arc, right? You've got these characters, you've, you've introduced your core characters, um, you have complications, you have, um, you know, shifting loyalties and all of that. And you kind of, you, you have a very definable arc to everything. I think that some of that is because those were intended to be, you know, Lucas, at least to a certain degree, planned what he was, what he wanted to do with those characters, even though the first film works just fine as a standalone. Um, I think the worst sequels are the ones where it's like you're trying to carry on the um, the story, even though the story really has come to a conclusion. So rather than just being like, okay, we're going to make a completely different film with the same characters, um, but have them go on another adventure, as with the Indiana Jones franchise, right? Um, we're instead we're going to like try to add on this extra arc to a, a story that really was over in the first movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, yeah, I think that that's kind of where it comes when if you're talking about films that are like going in sequence so you've got different adventures uh i i think that it's best when you have something very self-contained and they're also not trying to repeat whatever the original did because so there are a lot of sequels that feel like oh this worked the first time pirates of the caribbean is a good example yeah this worked the first time so we're just going to do more of that and the problem is that it doesn't strike a balance. It doesn't really try to, you know, tell an interesting story. It's more like, oh, you liked Captain Jack Sparrow being zany. So we're just not, so we're just going to focus on that. We're not really going to spend any time developing him, developing other characters or providing an interesting framework. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, um, because the, when Pirates of the Caribbean 2 came out, there was this whole thing about how like, oh no, uh, it was, I think it was, was that Lance Hellstrom? I can't remember. But anyway, um, or Gore Verbinski, Gore Verbinski did the first one. But um, but yeah, it was, it was like, oh no, this was written to be a, a trilogy. And it's like, but was it though or did you just go ahead and decide to do a second one after the first one was so successful and got oscar nominations and made a whole lot of money you know and uh yeah and that's the thing it's you know 
like star Wars, like you had said, um, that was three parts. George Lucas, when he did star Wars, he knew where that series was headed. Um, but with, well, and, and I, you know, I think there are a lot of trilogies where it's like, they sit down and they know kind of where it's headed, even if it's not written out yet with pirates of the Caribbean. I don't think they had any plan past the first movie. It was just, then they kind of retroactively created this trilogy and then they did a fourth movie and then they did a fifth movie which was just like let's just forget that even existed but yeah um yeah sorry well and no i I was just gonna say i i agree with you and i i think that it actually actually those series of films would have been a lot better if rather than trying to shoehorn in this this plot arc they just Mm -hmm. been like okay you really liked you know the story about pirates so now we're going to tell another story about pirates yeah right and And you can even still make it about the same pirates but yeah yeah. they just go on another adventure there's nothing wrong with that and and i think that there are too many there are too many films that are that try to be franchises and just like these are not really franchises you can tell a difference you can tell a different story using the same characters but but these are not like you don't have to make this epic arc because these these films aren't prepared for that right they can't sustain the weight yeah um i i really want to go back to some of the 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 sequels that they had back during the classical period um so like the thin man movies the thin man movies are a lot of fun and they kind of peter out nearing the end but they are you've got nick and nora charles uh william powell myrna loy and they solve murders right and Mm -hmm. so the second film actually takes place almost immediately after the first one but there's almost no reference to the first film it's just oh they're a married couple we love them they're drunkards they like really like each other uh you know they they just had sex on the train um and now we're going to go and solve another murder mystery Mm -hmm. and that's a lot of fun uh you get the same sort of thing with um with some of like the the andy hardy films and things like this you've got these core characters but each film is its own sustained arc there's not really much of a concern about oh we've got to do all of these callbacks to the previous film or we've got to you know make this all about the epic arc of their marriage or something like that it's just okay now we're going to solve another murder mystery now we're going to go on another adventure Mm -hmm. yeah well and you see this with like the old godzilla movies too and the king kong like well not king kong so much but yeah like especially with godzilla there's all these different Godzilla films. Some of them are made by different people, but um, it's, yeah, they, there's different, completely different plots behind them, completely different reasons for them existing. And I think that, uh, first of all, I'm, I agree with you. I'm frustrated with everything being just called a franchise. Like that's just how we, we we package them up now. It's like, oh, these movies all share something in common. So they're a franchise now. Um, and so then we try to to put all these ties, like everything has to be tied to something else. There have to be connections. It's yeah, it's it's annoying. And I think that I mean sometimes it's great and sometimes it just doesn't work. And but we keep trying in in this day and age rather than um you know, I think one of the things that's that's good about just having these different adventures, like you say, is that sometimes they're not going to work so well, but that's okay. That movie comes out, you're like, eh, that one wasn't my favorite. You brush it off and you move on to the next thing, you know, the next story, yeah. the next adventure. 
you know, some of the James Bond movies, some of them are good. Some of them are not good. And who cares, you know, but then when we get into the later version of them with Daniel Craig, it's like, they all have to tie together and it takes the fun out of it. It makes it less, less enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, exactly. James Bond is is another really good example for that. Um, And, and also like, I remember watching Quantum of Solace and being like, I have no idea what's happening. I don't know because you're, you're talking about these things that apparently happened in the first film, but I do not remember them. Mm-hmm. and and I, I found that a lot in franchise films I find that a lot in like a, a lot of the MCU films and um and some of the Star Wars films I'm just like I don't remember this plot point that you are expecting me to remember that this entire story hinges on I don't know what you're talking about yeah. so I'm just sitting there being confused yeah um well, and this is where I'm starting to get concerned about the direction. I mean, I'm still down for them and I love them, but I'm starting to get concerned about the direction for the Mission Impossible movies because uh, Mission Impossible 6 was the first sequel, like a first real sequel in a Mission Impossible movie where it directly tied to the movie before it. All the other ones, there. I mean, there are things that are helpful to know about what has gone on before. But he's got a different team every time, except for Luther. Um, he's, you know, and it's like different, completely different situations, completely different cases, and um, and totally different movies. In fact, the first three, the styles are completely different from each other. They don't even look like they're in the same, you know, same franchise. (laughs) And they do not. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's, that's fun, you know, and, and I like them all, but then you, and even the fourth one is, is also a very different movie from the other three. But then when you get into five and six, then they're tied together. Seven is supposed to be tied back into them. And it's like, I'm still interested because I really like these characters, but I think now we're starting to lose what made those Mission Impossible movies so fun. So I'm I'm a little concerned about yeah. that. Yeah, really, really what we're talking about is this idea of episodic filmmaking. Yeah. Um, so they say these self-contained adventures. And and I think that Mission Impossible again is is very good for self-contained adventures because you've got this core team. Um, and then stuff happens and like, oh, you've got to go save the world, or you gotta go, you know, stop uh Thandie Newton from from releasing a virus or like all of these different things Mm -hmm. um you know and and that comes to a conclusion and then we go on to the next to the next one right Right. and there's there's nothing wrong with that I do have to say one of my favorite batshit sequels is Bride of Frankenstein oh yeah which (laughs) I I don't I always forget and then I watch it again and I'm like oh my god this literally takes place like this it's it follows on the second film exactly and it shows how like frankenstein somehow survived the total collapse of a windmill and like all this shit and then it just goes off on this random ass tangent just like this was literally the the first movie was yesterday and this movie is like tomorrow and i was like what is happening <laughs> this is crazy and and it's and i think that some of that is that james whale just obviously knew what kind of film he was making and he was just like i'm just gonna go fucking insane and uh-huh. you can't stop me <laughs> yep uh what about some sequels that never happened for better or for worse like i remember being so disappointed when i found out there was no history of the world part two 
You know, me too. <laughs> me too. Me too. I, and I love the fact that it. the movie is called History of the World Part One. I, I actually remember looking for History of the World Part Two when I was a kid and uh-huh. like never being able to find me. I'm like, well, I don't understand. There's a part one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so great. I love I like I love it, but I wanted more. It was the first movie was so funny and yeah. Well, the only movie. It's not the first movie. It is the movie. <laughs> I I mean, obviously I want a sequel to Ghostbusters uh ATC. Um I don't think that that's ever going to happen, but I still can dream about it and mm-hmm. like imagine a time in the future where men are not assholes and like we can actually have a sequel to a, a good Ghostbusters movie. <laughs> Yep, exactly. Boys are in everything. Um, I would also like the sequel to Spy that we've been told yes. is supposedly going to happen, but the longer it takes, the less I believe it. That is a franchise. That is like a born franchise. I yeah. do not understand why. Th- I mean, I do understand, but I'm angry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a born franchise. Speaking of sequels that should not happen. Yep. Uh, <laughs> uh but yeah yeah spy is just you're just like why can't can i please have like Melissa mccarthy and um uh what's her name miranda <laughs> rose uh, burn Ro- rose burn but also um oh, oh her yeah, friend yeah. who miranda and i can't remember her last name she's she is tv's miranda um like can i please just have them all going off on their like adventures and like roseburn can break out of prison or whatever happens <laughs> and you know jason statham is there like come on jason statham has to be there and i want to know what happens next miranda hart miranda hart yes i love her i love her in that movie she's so i great. need to watch that movie again <laughs> <laughs> i just watched it again last week it's like a once a month i have to watch at least one paul feig movie and i go on a rotation Sometimes it's spies, sometimes it's bridesmaids, sometimes it's Ghostbusters. Yeah. Uh, I I obviously All of want which sequel- would be great. <laughs> yes. I, I obviously want a sequel to Barb and Star, and I really hope that we get that. Um, I would like a franchise built out of those characters. Absolutely. Although, did you see about the Cinderella movie? Yes, and I'm desperately <laughs> hoping that like this is actually a stealth Barb and Star sequel. <laughs> I think that would be amazing. <laughs> but yeah, no, I was so happy about that. I was like, oh good, Kristen and Annie are gonna be Cinderella's evil stepsisters. I cannot wait for that. But um, but yeah, no, I want I want like five or six Barb and Star movies. And I'm serious, I know we talked about it the last week or something, but I think the next one needs to be at the Rockin' R Dude Ranch in Utah. That would be brilliant. Yeah, I, I agree with that. We, we put it out into the universe here. <laughs> yep. I would like a soft reboot um, Slumber Party Massacre 4. Oh, that would be great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And I would love to see someone like, I don't know, who would be a good director to join into that franchise? Let's see. Hmm emerald finale oh that would be fun <laughs> yes someone with like a really strong visual sense I uh-huh think. And, i was thinking kathy ann too yeah kathy ann is another one definitely mm-hmm. who just like likes the kind of bright bloody colors sort of yep. thing <laughs> yep totally so yeah anyway um i had kind of thought maybe we could spend a little time talking about female directors and sequels but really they don't usually get to make them so 
There's not much to say about that. There are a few. I mean, uh, <laughs> Patty Jenkins has been allowed to make uh, to make her sequels to Wonder Woman, which I'm yes. happy about. Yes. Uh, that's actually, I mean, it's sad how unusual that is. Right. Exactly. It's, I mean, I remember when that was announced and I was just like, oh, wow, look, they're actually letting a woman direct the sequel to her own movie. And people tried to argue with me. And I was just like, uh, okay, let's talk about Mamma Mia 2. Let's talk about, um, I can't even remember now, but it's like, yeah, usually when a oh, woman, the, the Twilight. The Twilight mm-hmm. yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when a woman directs the first movie, no matter how successful it is, if they're going to green light a sequel, the majority, the vast majority of the time, it's a man that will direct the sequel. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why the sequels are usually not as good. Because so. women are better than men. So there. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh man anyway um but yeah so women need to make more movies and make sequels of their own movies if they damn well feel like it and i have to say i love that lana wachowski is now lana wachowski and is known and out that way for matrix 4 it'll be interesting to see how people receive that film yeah see well i mean there there we go we have women that were allowed to make their own sequels i mean Mm -hmm. And and I think that's that's definitely a positive thing. Yeah, I I would be interested to see how the fanboys react to that. Yeah, regardless be, of the quality of the film. Well, honestly, I think it'll be interesting to see them either embrace it if it's just you know so amazing that you can't deny it, or find all sorts of reasons to try to say that it's not. I know people want to like it. I know a lot of people do, and they're ready to like yeah. it, but. I, I know there's going to be other people who are just going to be mad about it just for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it reminds me a little bit of when the first Wonder Woman came out and there was some pushback from male critics and there was some, but it was so openly embraced by so many people that I, a lot of the pushback didn't really exist. Then yeah. Wonder Woman 84 came out. And it was like the vitriol, I, we talked about this when it came out, but the vitriol that came from male critics, it was like they were waiting mm-hmm. for something that was imperfect, for something that wasn't as good, for even something that a number of female critics said that they, they had issues with for a variety of reasons. And it, it was like they were just lying in wait to hate this, this film. They couldn't, yeah. they couldn't hate the first one because it, it was so good. And then the second one had problems and they were like, oh, we're going to eviscerate this film. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the violence of some of, uh, of some of the reactions was really, really troubling, but it, it, that's what it felt like that they were, they were waiting for this to be bad. Yeah. Like they just, it, it gave them this weird pleasure. I mean, I came across an article just preparing for today um and i didn't link it because it wasn't worth my time but i came across this article it was like the 20 worst sequels of all time of all time and they had wonder woman 1984 in there and i was just like oh for fuck's sake come on no i was so mad like i was so mad that i didn't even bother looking at who wrote it or what website it was on but it was just like well this is ridiculous I mean, that just argues to me that they haven't seen enough films because my yeah. God, there's, there are some sequels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, another one that people started talking about again this week was um, Alien Covenant and Prometheus. And I was just like, oh yeah, that's right. Alien Covenant is the movie that retroactively made Prometheus good. 
Because Alien Covenant was so bad that all of a sudden you're like, oh, actually, Prometheus has some charms. Movies that are worse than Wonder Woman 1984. That could be a whole episode right there. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, well, what is your very favorite or one of your very favorite sequels, Lauren? I have many very favorite sequels. Obviously, Summer Party Massacre 2 is one of the best films ever made. (laughs) Um... Yeah, Ghostbusters is definitely, I I would consider that to be a sequel. It's definitely related to the other films. Um, I'm trying to think, uh, Curse of the Cat People. I've talked about this film before and I just adore it because it it takes some of the elements that that you get in Cat People with with Elena and who she is and kind of the suffering that she undergoes. And it gives you this wonderful cathartic fairy tale. Um, to to resolve her narrative to kind of find some space for healing in that whole story and and I really like that about it so that that's that's one that I feel like doesn't get addressed enough because people are so impressed by cat people that they almost forget there's a sequel to it and it's such a different film it is and it is very good I agree with you um I'm gonna call birds of prey a sequel to suicide squad (laughs) and um yeah it's a great movie one of the best ever um the screen movies for sure mission impossible 4 and um yeah i think that's it (laughs) there are a lot of great oh jaws 2 i love jaws 2 i actually think i like jaws 2 better than the first one but is it better than citizen kane that's the question (laughs) i mean (laughs) let's let's do a whole ranked list (laughs) oh man people i i did find it interesting the conversation about um was it b peterson who was saying like yeah yeah and so just just to give some context on this though uh there was a, a again this is on twitter there was a tweet that was saying that that can we stop pretending that jaws is a better film is not than, a better film citizen king yeah. is a better film than jaws and yeah it's like i don't what <laughs> <laughs> and and my initial comment had been that um uh that you know they're two very different films which they are i i have serious difficulty being like which one of these films is better i don't it's that's like saying do i prefer eating chocolate or do i prefer eating caramel like i like them both for completely different reasons um but so i i said well the male obsession with ranking stuff is stupid and and then then b peterson pointed out that um a lot of neurodivergent people find ranking things and making lists really important because it's a way of organizing thoughts and and uh, um, they had a, a really interesting kind of way of talking about it it wasn't something that i had considered yeah same and i was so glad that they brought that up because i, I you know i just i get so this is something that i'm guilty of i get so entrenched in like ah why do boys do this that it doesn't it doesn't occur to me that like there are actual legitimate reasons why um people might you know might rank rank things or you know just other other um avenues of organizing thoughts and and stuff like that so i i really appreciated that perspective so i'll be a little bit less mean about (laughs) about people ranking stuff but seriously do not ask me if citizen kane is better or worse than jaws (laughs) (laughs) But that, that's the thing it's like just like so do I, I i think that some of what we're talking about is 
is ultimately about preference. It's just like, I like yeah. this movie more than I like this other movie. And I, that's always legitimate mm-hmm. um, when you're talking about a personal preference. If you're taught, I think that the problem that I usually have with ranking is that it comes off as a lot of the time it comes off as not like, this is, you know, here are my top 10 favorite films. Right. Here are the top 10 greatest movies ever made, right? Uh, that's, there's a difference in, in what is being argued there. So it comes off as like saying that this is an objective fact that, there's, that these are the 10 greatest movies ever made. It's an objective fact that Jaws is better than Citizen Kane. It's like, well, you might prefer Jaws to Citizen Kane and that's, that's a totally legitimate perspective. But mm-hmm. to say that one is better than the other, objectively is is a really I I just I I, my brain just can't process that right well and I just I personally don't organize things that way in my mind so yeah so it's it's again it's I'm not it's a perspective that's not mine so I don't you know like to me it is it's back to the chocolate and caramel thing it's like no they're totally different I like them for different reasons and saying one is better than the other does not personally help me so but I appreciate hearing other people's perspectives and points of view. And, um, and yeah, I, I mean, I think on that note, I just want to say like, if I'm saying something that, that, um, you have a different perspective on, let me know, like inform me. I want, I want to learn. Yeah. So any other final thoughts before we go? No, I again watch more movies because if you seriously, if you think that Wonder Woman 1984 is the worst, is one of the worst sequels ever made, then you just really have not watched enough films. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Oh man. So, but anyway, um, we do appreciate you listening and we want to thank everyone for, for supporting the show. Uh, as always, we'd like to thank our patrons, Adriana, Ollie, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Mason, Matt, Matthew, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. If you'd like to become a patron and support the show too, it is Patreon, patreon.com slash citizen dame. Too many words all at once. Uh, we also have our Zazzle store, which is zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod. Uh, we don't have new stuff up there. So if you've been on there recently, it's all still the same. But uh, now that I have a brand spanking new laptop, I'm finally going to get around to updating our logo and refreshing that stuff. So we'll have some new things coming very soon. Um, we do also have our Ko-Fi, which is ko-fi.com slash citizen dame if you want to support the show, but you don't, uh, don't want a commitment and don't want merch or anything like that. You can go there. Um, we have our website, citizendamepod.com, where we have some new stuff coming. I know we keep saying that, but we really do. <laughs> Lots of good things coming our way. We do. My my Barb and Star review should be up uh, by the time we've released this episode generally. So Woo-hoo. yes, that, that will be up. I ha- <laughs> I've had a lot of fun writing that review and I will recommend the Blu-ray right now because there's some fun <laughs> shit on there. <laughs> I bought it this week because I was just like, you know what? Fuck it. I want that movie. <laughs> I need to watch it again 500 more times and I'm going to watch it today because <laughs> it's so good. Um, yeah. And we, you can email us if you want to, citizendamepod at gmail.com. We also are available on Twitter and Instagram at citizendamepod. And we can be reached individually too. Lauren, where are you? I am on Twitter and Instagram at LH Business. And I am on Twitter and Instagram at Karen M. Peterson. Thanks so much. And we'll catch you next time.
Are you suggesting that someone's trying to make a real-life sequel? Stab 2? Who'd want to do that? Sequels suck. Hey, no, no. Come on, man. Oh, please, please. By definition alone, they're inferior films. It's bullshit generalization. Many sequels have surpassed their original. Oh, yeah? Name one. Yeah. Aliens, far better than the first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, there's no accounting for taste. Thank you, Ridley Scott rules. Name another. No. <laughs> Aliens is a classic, okay? Get away from her, you bitch. I believe the line is stay away from her, you bitch. It's film class, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, gotcha. whatever, you know what I mean. Another. T2. Mm. You've got a hard-on for Cameron. Big one. <laughs> but wait a second, the first Terminator is historical. Yeah. Sarah Connor. Yes. <laughs> Wait, fine. All right, all right, all right, okay. House two, the second story. Oh, what? The entire horror genre was destroyed by sequels. I, I got it, by the way. I got it. The Godfather, part two. All right, that's enough. That'll be a wrap. The sequel discussion to be continued. <laughs>